Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. They put people into two categories. Polite, decent, civilized motherfuckers and violent people. And I don't think that's nuanced enough. I think there's a person who is violent but is actually honorable and decent. That is that archetype that I'm interested in. Yeah. Here on Invisible Choir, we've covered all sorts of cases. Each nook and cranny of the extensive realm that is true crime has been thoroughly dissected, analyzed, and digested right here on this podcast. You think we'd eventually get sick of it, but we never do. Our intrigue and desire to understand the human psyche through criminality never yields, nor ceases to amaze us. With that being said, a lot of the crimes we cover differ wildly from one to the next, but some do share great similarities, such as the all-predictable motive of love or money. But another type of case that reappears from time to time in our research is the theme of the echo chamber, the online rabbit holes or dangerous digital caves people sometimes find themselves stuck in. Oftentimes, these involve alarming ideologies from a central figure or figures which in turn fuel thousands or millions of fans or followers online. Here, individuals will validate each other's misconstrued realities, thus making these ideas or philosophies seem a lot less absurd or atypical, to them at least. Art, film, books, and music are the simplest forms of joy in most of our lives, but in the rare occurrence where the creator of said media is one with a propensity for extreme violence, the fandom that may inevitably follow can be downright frightening. When we inadvertently turn monsters into martyrs, when villains aren't vilified but are instead glorified, bad things tend to happen. Copycat killers, for instance. But when we do discuss these topics as they pertain to crime, the age-old question often arises. At what point do we draw the line between free speech and a foreseeable threat? And might free speech sometimes go too far? If so, at what point should one intervene? In the United States specifically, we pride ourselves on our freedoms. They are the very foundations for who we are as a people. The very first amendment being the first for a reason. But if warning signs are present, if someone exhibits bizarre behaviors online for years on end, when do we stop them? At what point do we intervene? If digital footprints were to indicate that a quote-unquote war is coming per se, is there anything that can actually be done? Or are we forced to wait around and simply hope for the best? We've seen it here before. That kind of inaction by authorities in particular has gotten people killed. But we'll leave it up to you, our listeners, to decide if this case is any different, or if the lines between so-called fiction and fact are far more blurred than any of us realize. In 1974, a child was born by the name of Lyndon James McLeod. As the son of an army officer, Lyndon spent a fair amount of his early years traveling with his family, their homes dictated entirely by where his father was stationed at the time. 
He looked up to his dad. He was a strong, rugged man who defended his country. When Lyndon was a bit older and while living in North Carolina, he discovered the Zendik Farm, an environmental co-op commune, which some have dubbed a cult. As a testosterone-driven young man intrigued by the fact that founder Wolf Zendik did not believe in monogamy, Lyndon decided to join in the spring of 1999, but it wouldn't last long. It would only take about a year for Lyndon to realize, however, that the earthy, crunchy lifestyle of the Zendik farm was not for him. And while their mission to rescue planet Earth from an ecosystem collapse seemed admirable, he'd decided he'd had enough and left. He was now headed for Denver, Colorado. By this point, Lyndon had rebelled against the hippie lifestyle completely. In fact, he now hated hippies. He was now into guns, heavy metal music, and discovered his love for motorcycles. He was what many called a real man's man, quite the contrast from the flower power way of life he'd once known and embraced. And like any man in his 20s, Lyndon wasn't sure what was next for him, but he was ambitious and seemed to have a knack for networking. In the early 2000s, he met a man by the name of Michael Swinyard. Michael ran what appeared to be an authorized grow-up, a caregiver business for medical marijuana plants. With that being said, not all of what was going on was necessarily by the books. In fact, most of their operation wasn't. Swinyard's business was essentially used as a front to launder money, as he was trafficking immeasurable amounts of marijuana illegally. Needless to say, there was a lot of money being funneled through the underground weed trade. Untaxed money at that, and Lyndon was getting in on the ground floor. He had just formed a strong and promising relationship with his new business partner, Michael Swinyard, and things were looking up. Although years removed from the polygamist Zendik crew, McLeod ended up reading a book entitled Mating in Captivity around this time. The book was written by a woman named Helen Zuman. These were her memoirs, based on her own experiences at the Zendik farm, where she spent five years just after graduating from Harvard University. Helen and Lyndon missed each other only by a few months during their respective tenures on the property. He reached out to her via email to share his experiences at the farm, and the two quickly hit it off. They began texting and having lengthy conversations over the phone. Lyndon was in love and a sort of long-distance relationship ensued. While working on the not-so-legitimate grow operation in Denver, Lyndon continued to communicate with Helen regularly for years, but she soon began to notice a change in him. The language of his messages began sounding more aggressive and angry. He also began referring to himself as a, quote, recovering leftist. He started telling Helen about a societal collapse, that he believed was surely on the Western civilization's horizon. In their email correspondence, he demonstrated a newfound interest in race relations and genetics as well. He was now describing himself as a, quote, Shiva the Destroyer archetype who likes to watch shit burn. Needless to say, Helen eventually decided to cease communication with Lyndon McLeod. It quickly became evident to anyone that got close to Lyndon that he had some sort of pent-up frustration, along with the short fuse and anger issues. It wasn't out of the ordinary for him to fly off the handle if anything didn't go his way. For example, in 2012, while working at the marijuana plant, Lyndon McLeod pulled a gun and threatened to kill two of his co-workers. 
Perhaps anger problems is an understatement. Regardless, as a result of his actions, he was put on probation, and the case would ultimately be thrown out. By this point, Lyndon McLeod had an ego larger than the illegal grow-up altogether. He'd gotten away with quite a bit and had more off-the-books cash than he knew what to do with. It wouldn't be long, however, before the entire illegal house of cards came crashing to the floor. It's being called the biggest pot bust in state history. A massive ring broken up as dozens of people were illegally shipping marijuana to other states. In 2017, a federal investigation dubbed Toker Poker took down a Swinyard and 61 other individuals for a marijuana money laundering scheme worth millions. Along with 11 other businesses, 74 total indictments were eventually handed down. And this was the largest marijuana conspiracy ring taken down not only by the state of Colorado, but by the federal government at the time as well. To give perspective on just how massive this break was, two former Denver Broncos, Eric Pierce and Joel Dreesen, were victims of fraud thinking that they too were investing in a legitimate business operation. One name that somehow managed to evade charges and was not listed on any indictment, however, was Lyndon McLeod. It's unclear if McLeod could sense the weed empire was soon to crumble, or if he somehow avoided any criminal penalties by sheer luck. Regardless, when he parted ways with Michael Swinyard in 2015, just a couple of years before this all went down, it wasn't pretty. All we really know is that something had gone very wrong business-wise between the two men, long before the feds came knocking at anyone's door. Who knows what kind of shady arrangement the two had. Either way, McLeod wasn't happy, and he wasn't the type of guy to just forgive and forget. He'd later say that Swinyard betrayed him, allegedly to the tune of some $23,000. Lyndon would move on from the marijuana business, but the grudge he'd held towards his former business partner stayed within him and quietly swelled for years to come. Almost all the cash McLeod squirreled away was soon dumped into his new venture, All Heart Industry Tattoo. He and a Denver artist named Jeremy Costello became business partners. Jeremy had actually done a lot of Lyndon's tattoos previously, which is how they'd first met. McLeod didn't know anything about tattooing other than the fact that he had a few himself and that he appreciated the culture. But he needed a way to go legit and invest all of his dirty money from the weed business somewhere. And so, All Heart Industry Tattoo was born, and the doors opened shortly thereafter. While McLeod's latest entrepreneurial effort was up and running, he still had issue controlling his emotions. He wanted to have his hands in nearly every aspect of the business. He would routinely berate the staff and had demonstrated a noticeable dislike for women, especially women with any authority. Clients and employees alike also saw him as cocky, arrogant, and at times downright rude. His negative presence turned off almost anyone that walked in the door. This, of course, would not be good for any business. Lyndon McLeod also wanted Jeremy to teach him to tattoo for free, circumventing any associated costs or apprenticeships common in the industry, a request which he respectfully declined. The refusal infuriated McLeod, and All Heart Tattoo began receiving several negative reviews online. And while the artwork of tattoo artists Jeremy Costello and Danny Schofield were top-notch, Lyndon McLeod was just not the type of guy you wanted to be around. 
Customers slowly stopped coming back through the door, and the shop wouldn't even make it a full year before eventually shutting down. Co-owner Jeremy Costello cut ties with McLeod and would go on to open a new shop called Six Collective, which ended up becoming a great success. The building All Heart Tattoo had operated out of soon changed hands to a different owner as well, a woman by the name of Alicia Cardenas. The space would now be used as a satellite location for Soul Tribe Tattoo, another successful shop, one of Denver's best, in fact. Lyndon had failed as a businessman in the tattoo world almost as quickly as he had entered it. He was watching his former employees open shops and other women artists at that come into the building he once considered his own. It seemed everyone in the tight-knit tattoo community was excelling in their own businesses without him. Saying this made Lyndon McLeod upset in some way might well be a drastic understatement. He was enraged. Lyndon felt betrayed once again. He began taking mental notes, archiving a whole new set of names to a list of people he felt had wronged him. For some reason, McLeod saw these individuals as his professional peers, when in reality, he was never anything more than a money man, a behind-the-scenes investor. These tattoo artists had several years of experience and were finally thriving independently. Simply put, he was rejected by a community he so desperately wanted to be a part of. When he realized this, particularly that the women were achieving what he could not, Lennon became even more bitter, and his outlook toward the opposite sex became increasingly misogynistic. He tried to open another tattoo shop called Flat Black Ink, but it went under even faster this time around. And after burning through all of his cash, resources, and relationships, Lennon finally decided to leave the city altogether. He'd previously purchased over 38 acres of land in the San Isabel National Forest back in 2015. The property sat roughly three hours south of Denver. And so he took off, begrudgingly putting the mile-high city in his rearview mirror. Once he arrived at his land, he set up camp and began construction on a new storage container home. He lived in a tent alone on the land while he completed the build. Lyndon eventually cut all ties from family and friends during this time and began leaning heavily into his, quote, true barbarian self. See, McLeod saw himself as the ultimate alpha male, and it might well be fair to label him as a far less popular version of Andrew Tate or Dan Bilzerian, if you're familiar with either of those individuals. McLeod drank whiskey straight and took videos of himself working out on archaic makeshift gym equipment such as chain-link cables. He also began recording himself shooting semi-automatic weapons on his remote stretch of land, and it was during this time he also began writing a novel, which he titled Sanction. Lyndon McLeod's Sanction manuscript was written under the pseudonym Roman McClay, and was actually comprised of three lengthy sub-novels, each one ranging in length from an astounding 1,200 to 1,700 pages. While it was said to be a piece of fiction, McLeod mentions the names of very real people in his writings, including his own. In fact, though writing under the pen name Roman McClay, it was Lyndon McLeod who was cast as the main character in his work, which begs the question as to why he would use a pen name in the first place. Some say the story is nearly impossible to follow as the author trails off into tough guy tangents regularly, 
while others have actually given it fairly decent reviews. We'll just say that it's wordy and leave it at that. Full disclosure here before we proceed. We have deliberately chosen not to read the entire three-part Sanction series for one obvious reason. The at times incoherent rambling and stream of consciousness captured throughout totals a mind-boggling 4,485 pages in length. I remember leaning against my murdered-out Dodge Cummins diesel, lifted on 37-inch tires, redneck as fuck. The language throughout all three sections is fast and loose, with curse words strewn about like tiny verbal grenades. Each one personally detonated by McLeod in his own mind, no doubt, while crafting his so-called literary masterwork in near-total isolation in the forest. In fact, the word fuck is written some 1,159 times throughout the manuscript. Lyndon McLeod is depicted as the anti-hero in his writings, the antithesis of a social justice warrior who exhibits sexist ideals, expressing how women could never handle the shitty past jobs he's had, such as working on an oil field. The jobs men do, and only men can do, this tiny, crusty, middle manager asshole saunters up, and he knows nothing of what hell we just went through. And he tells us to clean some shit up, as if we're goofing off, you know? I told that little corporate fuck that he was in no uncertain terms, never to speak to me ever again. If he failed, I assured him I would murder him and his whole substandard family and put their sawn-off heads onto pikes along the perimeter of the White House's lawn. This is the general tone throughout the book, Sanction, egocentric and very angry. McLeod illustrates himself in the book as a superior human specimen, describing how an advanced artificial intelligence ends up choosing him as the, quote, perfect being, and then in turn duplicates and distributes his DNA to 1.6 million other men to, in his mind, accelerate mankind's development. It isn't necessarily what you would call the most humble of writing, but I digress. McLeod compliments himself by inserting quips regarding how strong he is before getting on to what might remotely resemble any storyline. Once finally there, the reader may or may not begin to realize the plot is actually centered around the theme of revenge. Ultimately, Lyndon McLeod is a vigilante outlaw who rides off into the night on a black chopper, sporting a leather jacket and dark shades on a mission to take out all those who have wronged him in the past. Certainly a book about murder, misogyny, and views promoting toxic masculinity are all within the bounds of free speech and creating art as one so chooses. The only problem, though, was that Roman Maclay, also known as Lyndon MacLeod, was writing about individuals who actually existed, specifically people of the tattoo and marijuana industries back in Denver, where he worked. Jeremy Costello and Michael Swinyard were two of the main characters spoken about in the book, and they were among those who were ultimately killed by McLeod in the fictional writing. During the scribed murder spree, he kills 46 people, mowing down his enemies with heavy artillery. Jeremy Costello's name specifically was mentioned over 100 times in the full manuscript. McLeod's sanction books were entirely self-published the first volume released in 2018, and the third in the summer of 2020. When the first book came out, McLeod started getting some light recognition on Twitter and Instagram. He soon began heavily promoting the book on social media, using the handle at McClay underscore Roman. 
Yes, I'm a jerk. I have high testosterone and low patience. I've been in more street fights than you have teeth. I've been arrested on felony weapons charges. I've had three women in bed at once. I'm aggro as fuck, dude. And I have MAOA gene and 4% Neanderthal DNA, too. McLeod began regularly tweeting out passages from the books, such as the one you have just heard. Well, you can imagine this sort of material might only appeal to a very niche audience. That audience did very much exist, nonetheless. McLeod began accumulating a fair amount of attention on the internet, eventually garnering a small cult-like following of other men within the, quote, manosphere, an underground pocket of the internet, where self-proclaimed alpha males with warrior DNA, incels, and anti-feminists alike share their views on all things manly. All white males are violent and will be more violent as they are made irrelevant by a country that hates them. Their limbic system is in revolt against the modern world. War is coming. War is coming, a sentiment he shared online quite often. McLeod often posted the phrase, Pain demands a response online. Another quote from his book, Sanction. He was slowly becoming a voice for the handful of disgruntled men on the internet who shared similar views on race, the human gene pool, and male superiority in general. McLeod soon began appearing on various podcasts and YouTube channels, promoting Sanction even further, out into the so-called manosphere. Over time, more and more small-time YouTubers within the realm also began to show interest. He sat down with another individual who at one point had traveled to McLeod's remote property to conduct a series of lengthy interviews. I live in a weird space. I'm proud of who I am, but I'm not proud of everything I'm about. I have thoughts, I have opinions, I have ideas, I have instincts that I think are wrong, but I have them. They're mine, they're real, and I won't pretend I don't have them. But that doesn't mean I'm proud of them. I don't know. I don't know how other people feel. I don't know if a person has to deny what they are or embrace it fully. I had to admit, this is who I am, and it's ugly. Lyndon goes on to say that when he wrote the book, he had no friends, that he was lonely, a theme he harps on in almost every single interview. He says that he found, quote, refuge in his hostility. At the very least, McLeod is well-spoken and seemingly self-aware here. During another interview originally uploaded to YouTube back in November of 2019, McLeod speaks from his newly constructed storage container home via Zoom. He goes into more detail about the grudges he's been holding on to, not as a character in the book Sanction, but in his own personal reality. During the interview, he publicly accuses his business partners of, quote, ripping me off and locking me out. He claims there were 11 such instances of failure in his personal and professional life, but that the 12th brought him to a, quote, very dark place. He continues by explaining how those dark thoughts, according to him, were channeled through the outlet of writing, writing which ultimately became his three-part novel, and thus bringing him back from the proverbial edge, at least for the time being. I said, how about this? Why don't you do something creative with your pain? Why don't you try to do something positive? I basically gave myself a pep talk, and I gave myself an out, too. I said, look, if this book thing doesn't work, you can go back to plan A, but, but plan B gave me something pro-social, constructive, positive, ethical, that I could do with the pain and the malice and the catastrophe of my life. Plan A, of course, being to enact personal revenge 
than all who had allegedly double-crossed him. Lyndon McLeod is much more well-read and almost affable on camera here than in some of the other footage that can be found of him online, completely opposite from the passages we've heard from his book and on Twitter, one of which reads as follows. Our entire society is made up of shitty little f***s who insult badasses and get away with it because law enforcement and social norms protect the weak from the strong. I'm over it. The weak better buckle up. The shit is about to get real. The question one naturally has to ask themselves here is, was Lyndon McLeod simply an artist? Had he responsibly placed his anger into a creative outlet, such as writing, as opposed to carrying out the acts of violence he so vividly spoke about in said writings? Or was the fictional novel an ominous foreshadowing of events to come? Only time would tell. But while the polarizing author's ego continued to be fed by others who shared his extremist views online, there was an entirely separate community of individuals back in Denver in fear for their own safety. Non-fictional true-to-life characters such as McLeod's former business partner, Jeremy Costello. At one point, McLeod took a trip to Jeremy's new tattoo shop, Six Collective Tattoo, six represented by the Roman numeral VI. The visit only heightened a very real-life cause for concern. Unannounced, McLeod plastered sanction flyers to the front doors of Costello's business. McLeod then took a photo of the storefront where he'd later post it to his Instagram account, along with the caption, The MAOA short-chain allele allows for dopamine to remain unmetabolized for a hundred times longer on the DMPFC than a man of common genes. This is the genetic science of the grudge. If our man, the man in question, has this gene, he will never forget betrayal, ever. Isaiah said as an inmate, 1618033 allowed an asymmetric grin to pull the top lip over the bronze incisor and reveal the metal glare. The convoluted paragraph closed with McLeod's signature hashtag, War is Coming. By the year 2020, Sanction and what small buzz Lennon McLeod drew online for his written works and seemingly fizzled out and hit its plateau. He continued to post to Twitter and Instagram, attempting to further engage with his fans. But the book would never reach the tier of success McLeod felt it deserved. And by that summer, a Patreon had been set up by Lyndon himself, in which he attempted to find new ways to generate revenue from the book. He even offered an audio version of Sanction as one of the perks, and would also chat directly with his supporters through the app Telegram which is essentially an invite-only online chat room. McLeod was also abusing alcohol more than ever before and had developed an addiction to opiates and prescription narcotic painkillers, which, by all accounts, wasn't making him any more pleasant of a guy to be around. Patreon supporter Andre Thiel, an EMS worker from Mainz, Germany, was among the 80 or so subscribers who participated in the Telegram chats, though mostly as a spectator. Thiel says he became intrigued with the independent work of fiction after finding McLeod's book back in 2018. He said at first he viewed the novel as just another creative piece of literature with strong themes of violence, something that isn't necessarily abnormal in American culture, especially as it pertains to art and media. But the closer he began paying attention to what McLeod was saying in the chat room and in between the lines of his so-called literary fiction, Andre Thiel became concerned.
he had always compared himself to Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. What he was about was violence, pure, unhindered, direct violence. Thiel hadn't yet made the connection that Roman McClay was a pseudonym, but he would later realize that Lyndon McLeod, the murderous renegade from the book, was in fact the same Lyndon who actually penned the novel. This original fan began to consider that sanction may not be a story at all, but instead a potential major red flag. The more Andre Thiel observed McLeod and what he was saying, he became fearful that sanction may very well be a manifesto written by a very deranged man. Could sanction actually be a blueprint of how the real Lyndon McLeod might actually carry out his brutal and redemptive fantasies of revenge? I had read the book. I listened to what he was saying. But how are you going to establish whether this is just somebody who talks too much or whether this is actually somebody who's going to do, uh, who's going to commit a terrorist act? At one point, McLeod did begin speaking more specifically about what he was actually going to do, his so-called plan or project, as he called it. He began speaking of loose projected dates, times, and places where he would more than likely carry out his quote-unquote war. I was evolving into a barbarian, a man that felt and thought in a different way. I look at my hands and I see echoes and phantoms and specters as if under three suns casting six shadows. God, the great mathematician, wants endless, if punctuated, war. And all this hippie peace and forgiveness talk is wicked in my opinion. I leave it to you guys to figure it out. What you just heard are from the actual Telegram chat logs provided to us from Andre Thiel directly, as well as text found in McLeod's book. Thiel began reading between the lines of sanction, analyzing and perceiving these writings differently. But he wasn't the only one in the Telegram and Patreon groups who began to see the author in a more troubling light. The chats eventually disbanded as a result, as the things he was now saying online became distasteful not to all, but to most of the members. Andre Thiel finally decided that enough was enough. It was time to notify authorities back over in the United States, so he proceeded to type a detailed eight-page report warning Denver PD specifically, as well as the FBI via email, that Lyndon McLeod could be extremely dangerous if left to his own devices. To make myself understood to the authorities, I will break down the facts for the complaint into three sections, background, criminal activity, and imminent threats of domestic terrorism. It may very well be that the accused is a typical case of literary genius and a petty thug who runs his mouth and talks too much. I would, from my personal experience, say that this might be a 90% chance, but there is a 10% chance that he has, at least in his own mind, created the perfect storm of right-wing terrorism. He has written a brilliant manifesto that has the massive suggestive potential for right-wing terrorism. He only needs to be authentic about his announcement to, quote, start a war. He has a motive, he has the means, and he has put a target date on his project, which makes it a sick but effective plan. I cannot in good conscience say that he will act with certainty, but I can say that if he should act, the results would be devastating. He then would stop at nothing. This, of course, is only a portion of the extensive letter written by Thiel, dated January 3rd, 2020. Andre received an email response back from Denver PD thanking him for his concerns, 
which explained that they would get back in touch with him if they had questions. But they never did, and Teal never received a response from the FBI either. These emails were the last time he'd heard Lyndon McLeod's name for quite a while, until one year later, almost to the day. The so-called storm McLeod spoke of was in fact well on its way, just like Teal had foreshadowed. And despite the ominous warning, when it finally made its way north from the San Isabel Forest back to Denver, Colorado, it struck in a way that no one was quite prepared for. December 27, 2021. At approximately 5.25 p.m., a tall man with a long beard, wearing all-black tactical gear, which was also allegedly emblazoned with a badge and police emblem, casually strolled into 56 Broadway in downtown Denver, home to Alicia Cardenas's Soul Tribe tattoo shop. Within a matter of seconds, he began firing a semi-automatic weapon. I looked up and... Um just like that, I just saw somebody and I got shot. The shooter first took aim at tattoo shop owner Alicia Cardenas and then turned to jewelry manager Alyssa Gunn Maldonado, killing them both instantly. Jimmy Maldonado was the third person shot. He was hit, but he was still breathing. Kind of just fell, rolled over underneath this bench and then uh, just laid there. Um, I can see his footsteps and uh, I just kind of laid there and... Um, act like I was dead. In a state of shock, Jimmy lay still while the killer moved about. He was struck with one bullet to his collarbone, which punctured the top of his lung. His wife and co-worker of several years were both dead in the other room. Once the gunman left the business, customers then ran to Jimmy's aid. They carried him out to a car in the back alley, placing him in the back seat. The group hid while they called 911. The patrons of Soul Tribe Tattoo essentially saved his life. Two people were dead, but this was only the beginning. The shooter fled in an all-black van, but only minutes later, a couple would receive a knock at their door at 5.31 p.m. Chelsea Matthews answered with her three-month-old daughter in her arms. She didn't recognize the man standing before her, but he was looking for her husband, Jeremy Costello. He said, I have a package for Jeremy Castillo, which is not how you pronounce his last name. Chelsea was suspicious of the so-called courier right away. He'd come to their side door, an entryway that is somewhat hidden and rarely used. Her instincts told her that something was wrong. And while Jeremy was inside the residence, just in the other room, Chelsea politely apologized to the man and told him Jeremy was not home. The man then asked if she was sure. With her skepticism at an all-time high, she closed the door behind him, but not long after, he returned. Maybe like 10 minutes after the male person had left, we just heard like a huge like bang, bang, bang. The individual pretending to be a delivery man was now back at their door, ramming it down with a sledgehammer. Jeremy, Chelsea, and their newborn daughter escaped out the back door and into Six Collective Tattoo Shop which is connected directly adjacent to the home. The three hid in a small room inside the tattoo shop when they began hearing the gunshots go off. The man fired six shots through the walls, narrowly missing all three of them as they took cover. Jeremy was able to retrieve his own firearm, but remained calm and didn't shoot. Once the gunfire ceased, a few more minutes would pass before they heard another large boom. 
minutes later we heard like a huge explosion and um, the guys in the tattoo shop came back and they're like there's a there's a van on fire just exploded someone had to just set jeremy castello's van ablaze potentially with some type of improvised homemade explosive device just moments after his family was attacked but there was no question who that someone was Jeremy knew the only man who wanted him dead from a past business venture gone wrong, and that person was Lyndon McLeod. Although Jeremy and his family somehow made it out unharmed, the gunman was now on the move and others were still in danger. Dispatch informed all units in the Denver metropolitan area that a shooter was at large, via an urgent bolo alert. McLeod was now traveling north in an all-black diesel cargo van, but the vehicle had not yet been identified, nor did they have eyes on their suspect. At 5.45 p.m., McLeod arrived at the residence of Michael Swinyard, his old boss from the marijuana grow operation years before. McLeod entered the apartment complex lobby and threatened the security guard, pulling a gun on her. He demanded the guard escort him to Swinyard's floor, to which she complied, her actions more than likely saving her own life in the process. McLeod eventually located the unit, and made entry to Swinyard's residence, shooting and killing the 67-year-old there in his own home. There were now three casualties at two separate locations, all occurring within less than a half hour of each other. And as McLeod continued along on his rampage, he now traveled southwest across Denver, where he was briefly intercepted by police. McLeod and officers engaged in a brief firefight before he somehow managed to escape and continued on his path. Somehow police lost him, giving McLeod just enough time to arrive at his next target location. At approximately 5.58 p.m., Lyndon McLeod is captured on surveillance camera parking his van in the middle of the Lucky 13 Tattoo Shop parking lot in Lakewood, Colorado. McLeod exits the vehicle, leaving the door open, and is seen holding a semi-automatic rifle in one hand. He walks at a relaxed pace into the tattoo shop, and a mere 10 seconds later can be seen exiting. He then gets back into his van and slowly drives away. Inside of the Lucky 13 parlor, 38-year-old Daniel, a.k.a. Dano Schofield, lay deceased, brutally murdered in what seemed like the blink of an eye. Authorities quickly ascertained from the countless 911 calls coming in that the shooter was clearly targeting tattoo shops. Police agent Ashley Ferris of neighboring Lakewood PD was one of the first to recognize this pattern. I was actually on another call, and then I heard that Denver had information on a guy possibly involved in some homicides, but he wasn't in our city yet. It was just airing information. A short time later, I heard um, an alert tone that we had a homicide in the north sector of our city. Agent Ferris headed to another tattoo shop in the Lakewood area, just in case the suspect decided to show up there. Meanwhile, McLeod had ditched the van at a nearby Wells Fargo in the Lakewood shopping district. And officers had located the vehicle immediately after, and then spotted McLeod, who was now on foot. A second firefight broke out, but McLeod once again was able to avoid capture. He ran, but made the bizarre move of heading into a restaurant to stop at the bar for a quick drink. He was recorded on a patron's cell phone video at Ted's Montana Grill, where he brazenly walked behind the bar, poured himself a tall glass of whiskey, and placed a loaded handgun to a staff member's head. Get the fuck away! Fuck off! 
wanted a drink. When the bartender tried to stop McLeod from helping himself to some free whiskey, he pulled his weapon. In the middle of the early evening dinner rush, McLeod can be heard saying, Guess who's in charge? before a few other choice words, and then leaving without further incident. Certainly the restaurant workers had no way of knowing just how lucky they were to escape this potentially fatal confrontation. McLeod had already killed four people by this point, and you would think that after he walked out of Ted's Montana Grill onto a busy street with a firearm, that this would be the end of his rampage. But McLeod was far from finished, and there was even more devastation to come. He fled south on foot to a nearby Hyatt House hotel, where he would then encounter the front desk clerk, 28-year-old Sarah Steck. Sarah wasn't even supposed to work that evening, but she generously covered the shift for another one of her co-workers. Unfortunately, at about 6.10 p.m. that evening, Sarah would live out her very last moments there on the job, just before Lyndon McLeod produced his weapon and executed the young woman in cold blood. Sarah was the only victim who McLeod didn't know personally or previously seek revenge on. She just happened to be there at the wrong place at the wrong time, and represented collateral damage among one terrorist's crazed frenzy. By now, Agent Ashley Ferris had just arrived at the other local Lakewood tattoo shop moments before. She'd parked her patrol car, lights flashing in the middle of the street, partially blocking the roadway as she set up a perimeter. Sure enough, whatever instinct she had previously had was soon proven correct. Just then, she spotted an individual fitting the description of the gunman as a tall bearded male in all black tactical gear slowly approached her. There was a tattoo shop to the north of me that I thought maybe he could be headed towards. So I took a perimeter spot at um, West Alaska and, and South Vance. And sure enough, he walked up to me. He was wearing a police vest and loading magazines. So I wasn't sure if he was from another agency. I knew other agencies were involved. I didn't see a gun, I just saw magazines and so when he approached me, I asked who he was. I asked where he was coming from. He said he had come from the Wells Fargo. I asked him if he was private security there because sometimes they wear, you know, police identifiers and stuff. I don't remember what he said after that because I knew, I mean, you have a gut feeling and I knew that this was the guy. Surveillance footage actually captured Agent Ferris and McLeod meeting there in the center of the road. In the footage, you can see she keeps her distance, suspecting right away that this is indeed the killer on the lamb, standing a mere few feet away. Just then, Agent Ferris can be seen drawing her weapon. I backed up and got distance and drew my gun, and I told him, don't do this. And he said, I'll show you what I'll do. And he displayed a gun from somewhere under his like jacket or something, I can't recall. Um, and then we were engaged in a gunfight. McLeod backpedaled toward the hood of Ferris's cruiser while firing several rounds at the agent. Ferris backed up to the rear of her own vehicle, but she'd been hit. One bullet struck her abdomen and she'd dropped down to the pavement. Still, Agent Ferris somehow managed to return fire, getting several shots off of her own in the process. I had fired some rounds before I actually hit the ground. He shot at me and then he ran. I could see him between my tires lying on the ground and I angled myself so that I could see him between the tires of my patrol vehicle. So he was in the front and I was probably 15 feet behind the patrol car. McLeod by then was struck with three bullets. 
Ferris was wounded but maintained her position with her weapon drawn. I was able to see when I hit him, he fell, and I remember saying, like, thinking, you know, okay, I've got him, he's down. McLeod remained motionless on the ground. There was kind of a moment when we were both on the ground, and I remembered thinking how quiet and peaceful it was. I had some pretty severe auditory exclusion, so it was actually silent for me. I didn't hear any of the sirens, I didn't hear any of the gunshots or anything. And I just remember thinking, like, I was looking at the lights reflecting on the street, and I remember thinking it was just kind of, like, peaceful. Moments later, a fellow officer is seen on the video, coming to Ferris's aid and dragging her to safety. A trail of blood is left behind as Agent Ferris is carried away and out of the camera's field of view. She was quickly rushed to safety as backup units moved in, surrounding McLeod as he lay there on the cold concrete. The severity of this situation finally dawned on Agent Ferris once she was being carried over the shoulder by one of her fellow police agents and into the hospital. As he yelled aloud, Officer Down. At that moment, she realized that the officer he was speaking of was, in fact, her. Thankfully, she would go on to make a full recovery after receiving several surgeries and extensive physical therapy. When I was hit in the abdomen, the bullet fragmented and the fragments actually hit my sciatic nerve. My right leg was paralyzed on scene. I couldn't use it at all. And when I woke up, um, I still wasn't able to use it. And so I had a walker for a while and then a cane, and now I'm able to walk. I don't have a limp anymore. Um, It's really coming along. Lyndon McLeod would not survive his injuries. He was killed there on the street that day by Agent Ferris during the shootout. Killed by a woman, the very sex McLeod viewed as inferior. That irony is not lost on the courageous young female agent. I do think the irony is kind of beautiful. But, you know, other than that, it's just happenstance that it was me. What iron are you talking about? Well, that guy didn't like women so much, so. The violent reign of terror was finally over, and Lyndon McLeod was dead. But this senseless act left a trail of devastation behind so immense that it's difficult to even fathom. The perpetrator claimed the lives of five innocent victims— four of whom McLeod tweeted, wrote about, or planned on killing for several years. Three out of the four names of the victims killed were actually mentioned in his book, Sanction. The Denver police and the FBI had warnings sent from people overseas as well as here in the United States. So the question still remains. Why were there no preemptive authoritative measures taken to prevent this tragic massacre? Legal analyst Scott Robinson offers his opinion as to why authorities did not intervene, and more specifically, why they couldn't have done more. There was no probable cause to arrest McLeod for any crime that he had committed up until that point, uh, unless we're going to criminalize truly bad writing. Following the string of murders, the Denver Police Department released a statement of their own. DPD is reviewing the investigation, but based on our initial review, There was not enough sufficient evidence to file criminal charges or a legal basis for monitoring McLeod at the time. While it's frustrating knowing the warning signs of an impending doom brought on by one mentally deranged individual were present and essentially ignored for years, it's important not to let that fact overshadow what matters most, and that's remembering the lives that were lost that day. Alicia Cardenas, age 44. Alyssa Gunn Maldonado, age 35. 
Michael Swinyard, age 67, Daniel Dano Schofield, age 38, and Sarah Steck, age 28. Jimmy Maldonado, husband to victim Alyssa Gunn Maldonado, still has part of the bullet lodged in his chest from that day. He struggled with deep depression and suicidal ideations following the violent death of his wife, a specific kind of grief no person should ever have to endure. Believe me, there's many times I wanted to give up. When I was in the hospital, I had crazy thoughts, you know, and like, I, I just, I didn't want to be here anymore. In time, Jimmy would begin to heal. His 12-year-old son became his motivation to rise above the suffering, something he still struggles to manage to this day. Not a day goes by where he's not reminded of the woman he loved so deeply, now gone. The more that uh, I go through her things and like just read things of hers and like I just realize how freaking amazing she was. Sarah Steck, the only victim McLeod didn't personally know, coincidentally was an artist herself. Not a tattoo artist, but an extremely gifted graphic designer. She graduated from MSU Denver with a degree in communications and design. And after her passing, one of her college advisors spoke with local media remembering not only Sarah's talents, but her personality as well. She really put a lot of her skills and talents towards projects that were kind of elevating voices of people who were misfits or um, outside of uh, cultural norms. I'm kind of choosing in the moment today to think about what she did accomplish and, um, and just the great impression that she made on everybody who uh, had a class with her and everyone who taught her. Alicia Cardenas's father, Alfredo, stood on the street outside of her beloved Soul Tribe tattoo the very morning after she was killed, sharing in story and grief with those gathering as a rapidly growing memorial of flowers, candles, and handwritten notes solemnly appeared on the sidewalk in front of the shop. She's going to be greatly missed. She, she affected a huge, huge segment of Denver community. Influential. Friendly. Could be gruff, but a real sweetheart. It's just going hard, to be hard to go on. 38-year-old tattoo artist Daniel Dano Schofield, who worked at the Lucky 13 Tattoo Shop, was remembered by close friends and family as a dear friend and loving father. Yeah, it was really hard for people last night. He was just a lovable, caring person and great person, like great friend. And then didn't deserve this. And I don't think anybody did. Michael Swinyard former business partner and mentor to Lennon McLeod, eventually had all felony charges dismissed from the earlier money laundering indictment and would go on to plead guilty to only a single misdemeanor charge. He was remembered as a quiet man who was talented at golf and built custom homes in the greater Denver area. Tattoo artists from all across the state of Colorado would soon come together, organizing a benefit to raise money for the victims' families. Designs from Danny Schofield, Alicia Cardenas, and even Sarah Stack's graphic design portfolio were offered at a discounted rate to the public, tattooed by other local artists in the community at the United in Art fundraising event. We're running a fundraiser for the families of the victims that were affected in the shooting that happened on December 27th. We have designs from Danny Schofield and from Sarah Steck, as well as other designs that were inspired by the artists. The artists who were killed live on through their original designs, permanently tattooed on the skin of several patrons who came out in support of these victims. 
But before the Denver and Lakewood communities began to heal, an ominous delivery from Lyndon McLeod himself arrived in the mail just days after the attack, as if from beyond the grave. The package arrived at McLeod's ex-girlfriend's home dated December 27, 2020, the day of the massacre. Inside of the box was a thumb drive. On it, a copy of a movie entitled War Horse. The film was written and directed by Lennon McLeod himself, produced several months before the killings. The footage eerily resembles the actual events that ended up taking place that day, more or less a visual representation of the book Sanction. McLeod, of course, stars in the lead role, riding around on his motorcycle and wearing the exact tactical gear, and driving the same black van that was ultimately used in the real-life murders. The contents of the package came with a letter, stating that the ex-girlfriend was to be granted the exclusive rights to the film, as well as any other royalties to come from its future sales. That film was in fact later posted to McLeod's own website, and made available for purchase and download for $30. The ex-girlfriend would later defend her position to local media outlets claiming that McLeod had stolen some $20,000 cash from her during the creation of the film, in addition to some $37,000 in cryptocurrency. Amanda Knight, a former friend of Lyndon McLeod, was allegedly in charge of running his website and selling the Warhorse film. She went on record to state, quote, People have to heal. People have to survive. We're not rich. In regards to the controversial sales, Knight went on to say that partial proceeds from the film were donated to the victims' families. Both McLeod's movie and website have since been wiped from the internet. The production team who actually filmed and edited Warhorse remain unknown to this day and have never been publicly identified. One who truly believes words without action are meaningless might be considered a noble individual, but only if those actions are used for good. Otherwise, that sort of philosophy, if set forth into motion, has the potential to become extremely dangerous or potentially catastrophic. In the case of Lyndon McLeod, this was undoubtedly true, and then some. He believed that murder, in some cases, was entirely justifiable. He was a hero to a very small group of men online, but taking the lives of five innocent people, whether they'd wronged him in the past or not, is far from heroic. The true heroes of this story are the patrons of Soul Tribe Tattoo who carried Jimmy Maldonado to safety that day. The heroes here are the victims' families, the people who find the strength to wake up and go about their day each morning without their loved ones by their side. One individual who unquestionably does deserve that valiant title of hero is Agent Ashley Ferris, the Lakewood, Colorado officer who used her wit, training, and courage to put an end to a man that can only be described as a monster. Ferris says she struggles with that title, explaining that she was simply doing what she signed up to do that day, to protect and serve. It's strange. I don't feel like a hero. I just, I feel like I did my job. And this is what the community needs us to do. And it's, it's my honor and my privilege to do it. Agent Ferris goes on to thank a local Denver Girl Scout group who sent cards, one of which included a Band-Aid while she was recovering in the hospital. She also expresses her opinion on the importance of women in the police force, hoping that this incident will, at the very least, inspire other women to become future officers. 
I'm happy to be a role model for some young girls. And I think fema- females in policing, I think it's so important. We have a different style of communication and stuff like this. It's, I mean, how often do you get to be a hero to a group of young girls? Like, that's pretty cool. When local reporters asked Agent Ferris if she'd ever considered stepping down from her career as a police officer after the tragedy, her response pretty much sums up her character as a whole. During these past five months, have there ever been any moments where you doubted whether you would return to policing? Nope, not one. You know, we thought we'd covered just about everything in this case. We thought the writing and research portion was entirely complete. Until just before publication, we received an email back from Andre Thiel. We reached out to Andre a while back during the beginning stages of working on this episode. We're glad he got back to us, because some of the information he divulged exclusively to Invisible Choir has never been made public. During the course of our interview, we discussed Teal's letter, warning authorities of McLeod, and much more. Things that were never released, never mind covered by the media. Andre was once the owner of a small book publishing company in Germany, and it was around this time that he first came across Lyndon McLeod, also known as Roman McClay. Teal was intrigued by McLeod's aggressive and controversial marketing, above all else. The most fascinating thing about authors becomes how they present themselves. And if they actually are publishing their own books, then how do they organize their marketing? And the thing that I realized about uh, Roman McClay, Lynn McLeod, was that his marketing was very different, really professional. He had a real story to tell. There was so much going on. And as a publisher or a former publisher, you don't look that much at the book or at the author, but what you look at is how people react to that. Andre admits that at the time he was part of the, quote, manosphere community online. Otherwise, he certainly would have never come across McLeod's work to begin with. Nevertheless, he was intrigued by his provocative style of promotion and began following him on social media which eventually led to him also joining the Patreon and Telegram chats. But it's also important to reiterate here that Andre Thiel did not know that the character Lyndon McLeod in the book Sanction was in fact the true identity of the author until much later. He learned that Roman McClay was only a pen name after speaking directly to McLeod's friend Amanda Knight on the internet. Only then does Andre Thiel begin to pick up on bits and pieces what was actually going on behind the scenes with Lyndon McLeod. The Monday night told me that he was living with her. I still thought that he was living in his house on that mountaintop. As Amanda and Andre became closer friends, communicating outside of the Telegram chat, Teal learned that McLeod was flat broke. He was portraying to his followers online that he was still living up in the mountains in the luxurious storage container home he had built in the woods leading the romantic life of a successful poet and writer, when in reality, he had sold everything and moved to a property that his friend Amanda owned in Memphis, Tennessee. McLeod later moved in with Amanda at a different residence in New Orleans, all while keeping up the facade of the successful author living in the remote woods of Colorado. Amanda Knight eventually exposed the true Lennon McLeod to Andre Thiel during one of their online chats. Little by little, she started to trust me, and then she told me about him. 
for example, he was just dirtbag. He he would never clean up things. She would do that for him. Uh, he was completely drugged up. He was boozed up all of the time. I don't know whether I should say psychotic episodes, but he was obviously having mental issues, serious mental issues. So that was a completely different person to what I had made him out to be. But those revelations only represented the beginning. McLeod was relying on Amanda for everything, from food, shelter, to even spending money. He was not the self-made, successful alpha male that he made himself out to be online. But the lies coming from a man who desperately tried to uphold this persona would only get much darker from here, as Amanda Knight began to confide more in Andre Thiel, revealing McLeod's at times dangerous and violent tendencies. He was a threat to her. I analyzed this very quickly and I told her at that point, I still believed or I believed that she was deeply in love with him and that she was falling for his alpha appeal. In this Patreon channel or the Telegram channel, he would attack Amanda Knight and he would um, threaten her. But the threats weren't just on the internet. While living together, McLeod would have aggressive outbursts threatening to physically harm Amanda Knight when they got into these altercations. She eventually became fearful for her life and shared her concerns with Andre privately. He urged her to get away from him before something terrible happened. And so she listened. In December of 2020, Amanda successfully kicked McLeod out of her home. With nowhere to live, he moved back to Denver, but all of his property was now gone. The land and the storage container home were no longer his. It was around this same time that Andre Thiel began seeing the book Sanction for something else, a possible manifesto. And a few days after Christmas in 2020, Amanda Knight received a message online from Lennon McLeod. And up to this point, I was pretty satisfied. I thought, okay, the dork is done. He's, he's in Denver now. He's not a threat anymore. Everything's okay. And then he invited her. He invited Amanda Knight to come to him. And he said, Two things. I have a flamethrower and I'm going to take this flamethrower to a kindergarten and I'm going to kill as many people as possible. And the second thing he said was, I have only 30 days left to live. That was the moment when I decided I had to act. Thiel then began compiling the eight-page report, the warning he eventually sent to authorities. And after reading the document in its entirety... It's truly astounding how much information he actually provided. Timestamps, Twitter accounts, reported threats made by McLeod to other women, as well as other authors online. The list goes on. McLeod had also been recruiting members in his Telegram chats, inviting them to join him in the war that was allegedly coming to Denver. There were also allegations claiming that McLeod had sexually groomed at least one underage child in the document. Andre Thiel reported all of it, leaving no stone unturned, but he was ignored, and one year later, Lyndon McLeod kept true to his word and his threats. Andre Thiel remembers the moment he learned that what he'd feared all along had actually come true. Yeah, well, I was at home, and it didn't make the news in Germany, but there was a very small report from a German news channel that I have that there was a shooting in Denver and that immediately got my attention and I googled it and bam 
course, I immediately found it. And I immediately knew it was him. Well, there were two reactions. The first is, I told you so. And the second was, I was, I was heartbroken. I mean, I was just, I was crashed, right? Because, I mean, it was just a devastating uh, killing spree. A lot of good people were killed. And the second thought is, should I have done more? I really was not satisfied with what I had done. I, I thought I should have done more to prevent this. But then again, what actually can you do? You know? After speaking with Andre, it was hard not to gain the impression that these events weighed heavily on his mind, to this day even. But the fact of the matter is, he did do everything in his power to prevent this tragedy, more than most had attempted at the time, in fact. And had law enforcement listened to Andre Thiel, the way he was presented in the media would have been much different. Headlines called him the German tipster, but had the FBI or local police actually followed through with a proper investigation, Andre Thiel surely would have been praised as the hero who helped save Denver from one of its deadliest attacks. Hindsight is 2020, I suppose, but it's that much more devastating, knowing that the proverbial writing was on the wall. 4,485 pages of it, in fact. And this tragedy might well have been stopped. Even still, Andre doesn't blame the authorities for what happened here. At the time I was presenting it, it was all circumstantial. Andre still struggles with the fact that he was naive enough to fall for the persona McLeod had made his followers buy into. He realizes now that the man was never anything more than an evil individual pretending to be something online that he was not in real life. But in the end, he was, all of the time, he was selling drugs, he was, uh, uh, you know, defrauding people, he was, he was a career criminal, nothing else. In regards to the three-part novel, Sanction, however, Thiel is able to differentiate the man from the novel. He still believes it is well-written. And with that being said, Andre expressed it to us, a strong opinion that its contents should not be taken lightly, nor wind up in the wrong hands. I still think that he has actually created a very, well, I'm not saying important, but it is a very special, unique book. People have said, oh, he, he couldn't write. No, he, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was just an evil genius. That's, that's what he was. But I can say it's a very tempting book. But I would also say it's a dangerous book. It's a book that should not be read, at least not just for people who want to be entertained. I do think that this book leads you to points where you are willing to leave ratio and, and sanity behind and act on your darkest impulses and your darkest energies. We couldn't help but ask Andre, given his previous statement, if some of those, quote, dangerous individuals he spoke of also existed in the Telegram chat, and if there were others similar to McLeod who were following him that may exhibit a similar propensity for extreme violence in the future. Yes, several people. Not as many as you'd think. Most of the people were just, so to speak, middle-of-the-road people, like they were interested in the book and... They thought that the atmosphere was nice. So that was, they were interested, they were fascinated. But there was a group of maybe five, six guys who you see as his posse, and they were dark people. Evil genius. It's not the first time we've actually encountered this description 
of Lennon McLeod and his lengthy novel turned manifest sanction. It's hard to imagine in any way that this tragedy had the potential to be any worse than it already was. If these five to six individuals decided to join McLeod in his act of terror, there's no telling what else may have occurred. We can only hope that these individuals are no longer communicating with one another in the confines of such a deeply disturbing and destructive echo chamber. This fact alone is a frightening general commentary on some of these online communities, communities which resound hateful beliefs that are not only mimicked and parroted, but encouraged, eventually pushing followers to step out from behind their keyboards to commit heinous acts for the sake of vengeance. It's a good thing that Andre Thiel escaped the so-called manosphere, only after realizing that this community, in his own words, was no place for growth in the slightest. I was in the manosphere from 2017 to maybe 2021. Um, I was not an active part. I had, we call this a channel, so where you, so to speak, publish your own material. I had a channel for some time, but I stopped very early on because I didn't want to continue with this. And for me, it was a very good experience. I learned a lot. I made a lot of connections. And the most important part, I got out of it. There are many men who are basically trapped in there who never find a way out. And for them, this is very likely going to be a horrible uh, experience. They are not going to develop for the better. They are going to regress. I did not. I actually made progress, developed my correct character and my understanding of the world, and I moved on. We asked Andre if the horrific events that unfolded in Denver played a role in his decision to leave the culture. He paused for a moment to reflect on the question as if he hadn't yet considered this as a reason. Perhaps a notion that was there all along, but was pushed to his subconscious due to the gravity of what happened that day. While he did say that leaving the online world of toxic masculinity in the manosphere occurred for another reason, he admitted that the devastation which took place in Denver may well have played a role. Okay, yes, you can say now that I think of it, I think that maybe it made it easier to go. Andre Thiel has since lost all contact with Amanda Knight. And several members of the Denver community have reached out to him and thanked him for his efforts in trying to prevent the unthinkable tragedy that happened that day. We appreciate Andre's ability to articulate and provide insight into a world we admittedly were completely foreign to ourselves. One thing we both seemed to agree on, however, was that Lennon McLeod didn't stay true to his own twisted standards. If his whole philosophy was based around justifiable homicide, and he was truly out to kill only those who wronged him, then why Sarah Steck? In the end, Lyndon McLeod was an erratic, unhinged, and emotionally deficient individual who did something awful, selfishly ruining countless lives and families in the process. He was the guy that held a grudge for so long that in the end it got the better of him and he just murdered people. So he was controlled by his emotions, which is an absolutely unmanly thing to do at least from the standards of the West, the combination of this emotional weakness and the belief that violence will somehow magically organize society in a more way that is honor-driven and, and has something to do with honorable men and how society should, from nature's point of view, actually be. And that is completely, that is madness. 